0: Head to the slash merch.
1: Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today.
0: And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: So many great movies, so many great conversations, but it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered
0: your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you, and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals.
0: That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered, from Season 1 up through our current season.
1: For part of Season 8, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968.
0: We talked about two 2001 and 2010 for our odyssey series both adapted from arthur c Clarke's novels man the second one was so much better than the first right
1: don't you even get me started (sighs) need i bring up under the cherry moon again
0: yes also so
1: much better (laughs) wait wait no that's not what i
0: (sighs) planet of the apes
1: kicked off its series based on the novel by pierre boulet we covered danger diabolic and the detective adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films Wait,
0: wasn't that the detective, the prequel to Die Hard?
1: They were both written by Roderick Thorpe. And yes, it's the same character in the books.
0: I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die
1: Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel.
0: And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees, The Lion in Winter, Rachel, Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver.
1: We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight.
0: We haven't talked about Gaslight.
1: Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books
0: and more adapted films at thenextreel.com originals. Every purchase supports the podcast.
1: Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
0: next reel everybody i'm pete wright and that there is andy nelson hey 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 and we spoil movies tonight in the show eastwood brings his small-town arizona lawman mystique to the big bad city that is new york what hijinks will ensue
2: here comes clint eastwood in coogan's bluff clint eastwood is coogan you from texas arizona and Coogan gives New York 24 hours to get out of town. Clint Eastwood, Arizona sheriff. Unpredictable, unconventional. Applies the techniques of the modern Western lawman to ride herd on the lawless in the joints and nightclubs of a big city.
0: This, Andy, is part of our uh, series on crime films of 1968, parentheses, that we have not seen
1: until this <laughs> point. Close parentheses. Close is that Im- parentheses. Is
0: that important for us to add here? <laughs>
1: Well, it is. I mean, it's an interesting series. I mean, you know, anyone listening to the show knows that we're currently doing for the rest of the year films that are celebrating their 50th anniversary uh, films and franchises. And so we specifically picked for this series crime films and the the four crime films that we're talking about right now. Um, This was one of the categories that we had all of our Patreon supporters voting on and narrowed it down to um, these four films, this being one of them. And I think... I, honestly, I don't know. I'm very curious now, after having seen the film, if any of our Patreon supporters have had watched this film before voting on it, <laughs> or if they were all voting on it based on the fact that it was the first pairing of Don Siegel and Clint Eastwood.
0: Well, and, and that, I have to say, is exactly why I wanted to see it, because of their history together, which uh, obviously we'll talk about. I think the, the, the film, if it surprised me for any reason, is that it, it surprised me that it, it felt um, emptier of resonance than I expected. Given what it was, it it seemed sort of um, predictable in the way it approached vice and the way it approached uh, law and order and morality, and uh, it it wore those things uh, pretty much on its sleeve. It it and and so I had a little bit of trouble looking at the context of 1968, what was going on in 1968, and seeing how this uh, you know this film wasn't just didn't didn't feel like kind of an obvious
1: trope machine. It's interesting because of the uh, uh, well, I mean, targets, as we discussed last week, that was a film that uh, Paramount was very nervous about releasing because of some of the things that had been happening in society, namely uh, some of the assassinations like Martin Luther King and and Bobby Kennedy doing a story about a guy who's, uh, you know, going around with his gun and, and shooting people from afar. It just felt a little too close to home. But interestingly, this is the film that people said it was too violent, and it rang a little rough for audiences at the time. It was it became controversial, and it makes me wonder if because of just so much stuff happening in the society going on in the late 60s that people weren't ready to look at some of the violence as it was depicted on screen. Especially in a film that maybe some of it might be um, portrayed with a little less care, like this film. It's, it's a little um, cavalier about its portrayal of violence, because this is really kind of kicking off that whole macho hero thing that, that Eastwood would carry in so many of his films.
0: Well, I think that is the perfect word for it. Careless. And and so uh, much better than mine of, you know, sort of empty of resonance, because it clearly has these things in it. It clearly is trying to make some sort of a statement, but it's doing it in a bit of a haphazard way. Uh, And uh, that that maybe is part of the reason I feel like this movie doesn't hold up as well today uh, as I, I felt targets did.
1: Yeah, I don't think this film really held up at all. I, I felt watching it that it was very much a product of its time. It was looking at um, some of this very specific crime issues of its time as this country mouse goes to the city and encounters hippies and encounters uh, drug trips and all this sort of stuff. It, it just felt um, very much... Um, of a very specific place that just didn't have that staying power that targets did.
0: So uh, let's talk about your experience watching it uh, for the very first time. Um, uh, say it doesn't hold up. What what did you think of the uh, the overall narrative of the film?
1: It felt uh, very standard. I, I think that you said it uh, pretty well already. It just it felt like it was playing with these. Police tropes, um, and you know, it was pretty expected. Everything that happened now, I thinking back to uh, other police stories, you know, it's I know we've looked at some films in the past that were kind of like the ones that kick started the genre where it feels like we've seen it a million times, but that's because this is where it all began. I don't know if we can really say that about this particular film. I think that cop films had been uh, going on forever, um, kind of along with the whole line of uh, noir films and even cop comedy films. I feel like it had been a thing. And if anything, this felt just very standard in the way that everything played out and just expected and and um, not very interesting. And to that end, it really was kind of a disappointment to finally see this. I had seen all of the other Uh, collaborations between Siegel and Eastwood, uh, just not this one. And and finally watching it, um, you know, I'm glad that all the later films exist. And so if anything, I'm glad that this is where they kind of connected so they could go to those other films.
0: Well, that, that I absolutely agree. Uh, so glad that this was a first uh, and that we get to get better with these two uh, as we go on. Um, the The whole sort of clash of cultural clash of values, you know, this whole pure country. I mean, I know you're an Arizona lawman yourself, so I, I would have thought that you would have a deeper connection with Coogan. Uh, and, you know, when you go to the big city, um, you know. It's it's a tough adjustment for you.
1: It is all horseback and uh, tumbleweeds out here.
0: It is. It (laughs) it really is. And so I, I, you know, I felt like that was a uh, that was a thing that just always felt predictable to me. uh, That there were we had these pure country values in. Coogan. And every time they ran into a corrupt or an abusive or, you know, drug addicted, drug addled or, you know, oversexed city folk, um, we would get the predictable out. And it, it felt like most of the movie after our initial setup, when we discover why Coogan is going to New York, uh, we just got these opportunities to put the fish in an awkward situation and see him try to figure out how to get out of it. And I, there was never a moment where I was surprised. Uh, case in point, the very first uh, time we see Coogan in the uh, New York City uh, Police Precinct, um, a uh, police psychologist is interviewing a woman, is interviewing a, a thug, and the thug is um, it, doing some of the weirdest behavior I think I've, I, I may have ever seen. It, it's not. I guess, shocking, but it it is just weird. He just reaches out and, in the middle of a conversation, puts his hand on this woman's breast and just holds it there, and there's some lascivious looks and maybe some comments, and she doesn't do anything.
1: Yeah, she plays it like the stereotypical doctor would, like, nothing you can do is going to surprise me, so you might as well just stop. You know, I mean, that's basically her attitude.
0: Because it's frustrating. Because even even psychologists and psychiatrists have boundaries. <laughs> you know, what I mean, right. like I, even I have to imagine 1968. It, you know, wasn't that different in a therapeutic context? And so, I I don't know. I'm not a therapist. I don't know. But it felt very strange. Of course, Coogan is going to step in. Of course. He's going to smack this guy around. Of course, that's exactly what he ends up doing. And of course, she, the cool therapist, actually blames him for stepping in. Uh, It was it was an incredibly predictable, all but the initial, you know, inciting incident of the scene. It was an incredibly uh, predictable way that it played out. And those kind of moments happened repeatedly throughout the film for me.
1: That's, I think, for me, one of the, the the biggest flaws of the script is that it just felt um, so so uh, sloppy and lazy with a lot of the choices. Like you have, I mean, that's a great example. Another one that, that drove me nuts is you've got this this guy named Pushy who helps uh, who helps Ringerman escape from Coogan right after Coogan uh, first takes him out of the hospital. Pushy is, you're talking about Bosley, right? Uh, the guy in the green pants. Yeah, yeah, Bosley from uh What was he Bosley in? Oh, Charlie's Angels. In you're Charlie's right. Angels, yeah. Yeah, uh, right. When we first see Pushy help uh help Ringerman escape, the only thing that Coogan notices is his clothes, that he's wearing these these green pants and a red shirt or something like that. And conveniently enough, we're like a week or more down the road, and when Coogan runs into him again, he's wearing the exact same outfit. Just sloppy. Just like Linny being a patient of Julie's. It's like, uh, these are horrible story conveniences. And then going back to Pushy, it's like, what was the point of that story thread? Why was Pushy helping Ringerman? Was there an element to that that could have been explored more or maybe when, when Coogan keeps trying these things out and like he blows a, an undercover cop's cover because he goes and talks to Ringerman's mother. Um, you know, these things like that, that he keeps trying <laughs> normally in a story. And, and maybe I'm just being, um, looking at it through today's eyes, but in a story like this, you would say, okay, so he's trying his stuff and it's not working on their territory. Um, but is he ever going to try their stuff and it's going to work? Or is he going to finally show them that, hey, if he does this thing of his in their territory, it will work. But no, they they kind of set this sort of stuff up and nothing gets paid off. It's just there. I, I just want some feedback on this, because uh, on that point, I
0: feel like we got a really sort of haphazard answer to Coogan's Bluff. Why why this movie is called Coogan's Bluff, which puzzled me uh, until this afternoon as I started kind of piecing together the first act and the last act of the movie. In the beginning of the film, we have this, uh, we, we have Coogan and he is, we, we actually open on this, um, it looks like a, a member of the Navajo tribe and he is running, uh, He's set up a, a bit of a, an encampment in a rocky outcropping in a mountain uh, in the middle of the high non-Arizona desert right? Yeah. And he has a gun and he's eating something. And then we have a jeep. And in the jeep is... Coogan. And it's dusty, and uh, way too dusty for my liking. It made me very uncomfortable. He finds boots, he finds clothes, he pulls them all together, and um, he ends up doing this this little vehicle dance in the sand. He, he starts doing these donuts to kick up a lot of dust and trick the Navajo, uh, member of the Navajo tribe to uh, think that he's to, in the car, but it turns out he's in all kinds of different places, right? I mean, he's, he's echoing through the rocks and and it turns out he's able to to um uh catch the guy right and i I, my sense is that is an example of coogan's bluff right he is bluffing he's not really where you think he is and he ends up winning the day Uh, are you with me so far i'm with you okay the end of the movie uh we we're looking for our, our our main bad guy uh, Ringerman, played by Don Stroud, has taken up his uh, taken up residence in a castle in the middle of uh, Central Park. I believe he's in this castle. He's behind these giant bars. Coogan has tricked uh, Linny to take him there, and Coogan lets her run ahead, and she does. Predictably, she runs ahead, and then he kind of sneaks around, and he ends up. Being Not where you think he's going to be. And there's this this long sort of protracted chase uh, through the hall, through the, the grounds of the castle. They get on motorcycles. They're driving around. But my sense was that that was how they wanted Coogan's Bluff to pay off from the opening of the film. Look, Coogan is so smart. He can use his wily Arizona police trickery here in New York City, even though none of the New York City cops thinks he merits a place there what do you think is it too much of a stretch
1: you know i no i'm not saying the, the challenge i have i mean it's I, not I rewarding can see, <laughs> no it's not and i i can see your point i can see what you're going for with that um the challenge i have is that coogan's bluff which and i didn't know this until after watching the film um is an actual location in new york it's an actual, like, um, a bluff. It is a, a, a piece of, it's a lookout point uh, over the ocean um, on Manhattan Island between Washington Heights and Harlem. Well, it seems like that should have been something that we know.
0: Well, exactly.
1: Well, and what is interesting, and I don't fully understand this, is that the film, as we watched it, has had about three minutes edited out of it. Um, the the scenes include Coogan receiving his assignment to go uh, to return Ringerman from New York, a short scene in a hospital, and a scene in which Julie talks about Coogan's bluff. Now, th- like apparently, what? this was this this edited material was in every version of it until like the most recent DVDs had come out, and nobody really knows. Um, what, what was the reasons for, for the cuts? So I don't know. I couldn't find anything about it, but it, it, uh, so I, I can, for us not having the luxury of having seen that footage, your, uh, your theory is the only valid one that makes any sense because otherwise it's a nonsense title,
0: total nonsense title. And, uh, uh, that's very frustrating. Why did they edit this movie, Andy? Why did they cut it? Why did they do that? I don't know. Nobody knows.
2: Susan Clark. She makes Coogan's blood boil in more ways than one can imagine. She falls for Coogan's Bluff. Don Stroud, dangerous hopped-up killer, who is cornered by Coogan's Bluff. Tisha Sterling, the beautiful decoy who calls Coogan's Bluff. Betty Field, who unwittingly buys Coogan's Bluff. And Lee J. Cobb the tough police lieutenant who challenges Coogan's bluff. Get the hell out of my office and don't come back until I send for you.
0: The movie does, uh, we've we've been a little bit hard on it so far, and I I think that's, I don't know, it's fair, but there are some things I think that are actually uh, interesting, particularly interesting visually. And and I don't, I'm not necessarily talking about the, you know, cinematography uh, specifically here, but there are some sequences that are really interesting to watch. The at one point, Coogan has to go find Lenny at a club,
1: right. Yeah, the hippie hippie drug club.
0: He goes to the hippie drug club, and then the movie changes tone. It feels almost like somebody else uh, was in in charge of it, certainly with a more active editing hand, trying to give us the feeling of actually being in the hippie drug club and uh, putting us, I think, for me, reasonably successfully in the head of Coogan as he is trying to make his way across the floor, clearly experiencing something that he's never experienced before how did this dance or this this club sequence hit you
1: again it felt like uh film school 101 uh type of storytelling you know they're in a totally different place let's make it crazy and so everything went crazy as soon as he went into the club the camera so you you think i'm being too easy on it right now oh yeah absolutely well (laughs) I mean, look at it this way. It, it It's an older film. It's a 50-year-old film. And we have to acknowledge that that at the time, for Don Siegel and his team um, behind the film, they were trying some things out. And sure, I, I think to that end, they did, as you say, create a very different uh, mental impression of this club for Coogan than we had seen at any point uh, so far in the film Um so, so, I mean, I can see that point. I, I do get a sense of that. Um, I, uh, you know, yeah, sure. I,
0: <laughs> I have to look at it that way because I was really not engaged in much else that was going on on screen. I will, however, say that as he gets to the middle of the floor, uh, a woman dressed in only a, a dragon tail of some sort she's nude and the tail is kind of covering her crotch and uh it's it, she's it, she comes swinging down like uh a, uh a, a, what do you call the cable
1: uh, uh like a, a guy wire sort of thing
0: yeah she comes swinging down this down a, a wire uh and lands on coogan right she she lands on him which felt like uh, again weirdly targeted um, sort of screenwriting <laughs> trope that she lands on the only Arizonan in the place. Uh, but then, I, and and that's the first time I'm thinking about the sequence, thinking, okay, they've created a cool environment. They're doing this crazy cool intercutting thing, uh, where you know we get these flashes of what's going on 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 these giant movie screens. We get flashes of things that I don't think are on the movie screens that I wasn't able to place. Kind of cutting through his experience of the of the facility, and then they they put this weird exclamation point on it by putting the naked lady swinging from the sky right in his lap. And I thought that was that, that for me was the bridge too far in the sequence. It just made it nonsense and not, uh, and not what I had gone into it with this sort of spirit of, of grace looking at this film saying, I, I really, I'm looking for something to connect with. It hasn't really given me much so far, but at least I'm visually inter- interested in what I'm seeing right now. And, and the payoff was not satisfying.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was considering how flat and dull, um, the rest of the film looked as far as the cinematography went. Uh, it was it was very standard, nothing, you know, there was a couple shots that, that were interesting to me, but, and, and a couple editing tricks that I thought were pretty interesting, but largely it was pretty standard and, and sometimes boring. And, uh, I, I, Attribute some of that to its age, but some of it, I just feel like, you know, they could have been doing some much more interesting stuff in this. I felt like Peter Bogdanovich was doing some more interesting things in Targets and considering I think this that's is like- the
0: most important thing right there. Andy, is that we've, you know, we're comparing movies that were contemporaries of one another. Why is it yeah. that Targets was so much more sort of engaging for me than than this one was? And they're just months apart.
1: Yeah. And this is like Don Siegel's 25th film or something like that. I mean, this is a director who had been making projects for a very long time
0: Uh and,
1: and certainly knew his way around projects. Now, as we know from, from stories about Clint Eastwood, he learned a lot of his filmmaking from like Don Siegel and, uh, and Eastwood has a very slow pace. He doesn't like doing a lot of takes. He just has a very kind of um, just a you know a careful hand nothing too crazy as far as he you know he's he's definitely not Edgar Wright I guess is basically what I'm yeah. saying or even scorsese he's just he is it he's a very simple way of telling his stories with his camera and I think Don Siegel is the same um I just think in this particular case that um as nice as some of Don Siegel's later films are I think this one is suffering from a weaker script that just isn't doesn't engage, and I feel that it was it was not something that um, was trying to do anything uh, that was exciting or or special.
0: Well, that's disappointing.
1: It is. It really was. Uh, Coogan is from Paiute County, Arizona, and there isn't a Paiute County in Arizona. Uh, there is one in in Utah. And and I think that it's just it's a funny thing to point out because this is this this country uh, uh, deputy sheriff who gets you know bothered when everybody mistakes him for Texan, um, yet <laughs> but he's here, actually here. They Utah. are <laughs> here. They are. They can't even get the county right now. There used to be a Paiute County in Arizona, but that was until eighteen seventy one. Um, when, uh, part of it went to Nevada and then the rest was named Mojave County, which is still here. Um, uh, but like I said, there is a, uh, Paiute County in, um, in Utah. So
0: let's, uh, let's talk a
1: little bit about Lee J Cobb. Can we as Sheriff McElroy? I don't think we've ever, have we talked about any films with him on our show at, at any point? Why is it that I feel like we have? And I feel like we haven't.
0: Uh, well, he was Lieutenant Kinderman in The
1: Exorcist. Oh, that's right. The, the, right with a little uh, uh, Casablanca ending of the yeah, film.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Right. I had forgotten that. Yes.
0: Yeah. We are well experienced Lee J. Cobb aficionados now.
1: That's, that's all it <laughs> took.
0: Uh, I I actually I quite like um, uh, Lee J Cobb. I think he's he's great, and uh, maybe in another um, you know in another universe he plays the surly um, you know New York lieutenant um, in a, a more satisfying way. I don't think he was given a whole given a whole lot to work with. He was a, a, he felt much more like sort of a script pawn, um, kind of moved around from scene to scene to just be surly. And uh, never gave us anything of substance, any real roadblocks uh, that weren't completely uh, it, just sort of obvious, again, uh, cop tropes.
1: Well, and that, that goes, again, to the story problems. I mean, you've got this, this, uh, this sheriff here who tells uh, uh, Coogan, you, you're off the case, your boss wants you back. And, uh, but just kind of doesn't really do anything about it. And it just, I don't know, it just was kind of uh, felt disappointing to have them uh, working the way that they did. I wanted to see a stronger relationship develop between these guys because I really like him as an actor and I thought his character had some potential. And if they found a way to really develop that between the two of them, it could have been nice.
0: Yeah, I agree. And it was, it was sad. It was sad when you see him on screen and realize that you're not, that, that you're not getting what, what he's capable of, even at this point, um, he, you know, in, in yeah. his career, it was, it was at the point where everything he's in should have been awesome. Uh, <laughs> right. And it just, just did not, did not pay off uh, uh, that well. How about the, uh, 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 the hippie, our, our friend, the hippie, Tisha Sterling uh, as Lenny Raven?
1: I, I, I struggled with that character and Coogan's relationship with her, largely because when we meet her, it is at the hospital with uh, when Coogan goes to pick up Ringerman from the hospital, and it's and she's proven right away to be um, uh, a, a you know a criminal and certainly helps Ringerman escape along with Pushy. Yet is never treated as such. I would assume that if that had actually happened, that she would be looking at uh, as a suspect and suspiciously and they would want to arrest her. But, of course, instead, Coogan just wants to track her down so that he can sleep with her, I guess, and get her to help him.
0: I don't know. I've, I'm, I've been trying to find a, com- a good comparison uh, of, of her and what her character is meant to do to do in the f- script. Uh, when, when you think of her, can you think of anybody who serves the same role in a different movie uh, that, that actually gives us that same kind of Janice complex, a uh, little bit schizophrenic, maybe um, completely not trustworthy. Uh, that isn't like, you know, the Joker kind of Harley Quinn, <laughs> it isn't right, a, yeah. a comic book villain. Uh, because that's kind of what I get with her. That, that's the experience that I have watching her that I, I never really felt like I could trust anything that got out of, that came out of her and that never that, that never resolved for me. She never became a, a character of any sort of redemption. So I couldn't quite figure out what I was supposed to do with her in the context of the film. I already have a, a, an antagonist that I haven't spent a whole lot of, of time with. Um, and you know, I, I just didn't un- understand what to do with her.
1: Yeah. And the fact that she had this connection with Julie, which seemed incredibly forced to have that uh, situation tied into this whole thing.
0: Yeah. Julie, who's her therapist. Yeah. That again, that was very strange. And on Julie, it felt like we have Julie in this movie just to give her the opportunity to be betrayed in her own office by Coogan. This gets to a challenge I have with Coogan that if he's showing up in New York to demonstrate uh, the what it means to be a beacon of morality, he does a terrible job doing
1: that throughout this film. Oh yeah, and, and that was a, a, a big thing I had right from the beginning because we see him getting very uh, his feathers ruffled when he sees this this uh, criminal uh, fantastically played by Seymour Cassell who's the uh, the boob grabber, um, kind of you know taking advantage of her and and so he decks him and and, and uh, offends her and all this sort of stuff. But then later, he is just as pushy with her. And I'm like, I, I, this is that James Bond, uh, you know, complex where, it's okay for the the uh, the hero to beat up the villain when they do something like that, but they' it's okay for them to do it themselves, right. you know because they're our hero. and it it's very uh, nonsensical and and uh, I mean unfortunately it's it's how a lot of these sorts of action films are when the cop gets the girl, right? They can be a little pushy and, and but they're gonna love it anyway. And it, it, uh, it was just kind of frustrating to see. And I just, I never felt like it was a relationship that was developed properly. And it just almost like it, it, you know, I I don't know what the right term is, but, um, like my, it's like my jaw dropped out of just kind of shock and screenwriter disappointment to see her at the end running out in her outfit Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, really? Is this where we're going to end with her? It just it completely diminished her as any respectable character.
0: Well, it was super cheap, uh, cheaply written. And, you know, that same vibe of just cheaply written women, uh, it it, it, we start the movie that way. Right after our initial, you know, catch uh, when Coogan gets back to his, you know, desert cabin, uh, he we have this weird Experience where he walks into the cabin. You're not quite sure. Is this his? Is this the guy that he just caught? Like what? What's he doing? Nosing around this cabin. He walks in, kind of skulking around, and he looks in the bedroom, and there's a, a beautiful woman lying in the bed, and he walks over to her, and while she's still sleeping, uh, you know, he's he's like leering at her. He's he is the kind of gross. Uh, totally creepy, total creep, uh, standing in the doorway and then goes up and starts kissing her while she's asleep. She wakes up and it turns out she's, you know, clearly knows him. And, uh, the, the payoff is, oh, isn't that funny? He was, he was being
1: a creep, but it turns out they're in a relationship.
0: Then he leaves town and proceeds to try to sleep with everybody.
1: Well, and when you say relationship, she's married. Her husband's out of town. Yes, and so that's the relationship,
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> right, right. Not to put too fine a point on the morality of Coogan uh, right. in this film, he is. You're absolutely right. The comparison to James Bond is great. Just James Bond. I mean, if he, uh, I, I'm not thrilled with the aesthetic of James Bond these days either. But I- at least he does it better.
1: Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't come across very well, well here. And I do have to say it it's even more disappointing uh with Ju- with Julie uh played by Susan Clark just because I you know I grew up watching Webster and seeing her in that show uh in my youth was so fantastic and to see her character kind of in this role it was a little disappointing.
0: Oh wow. I had forgotten that. Yeah. She's the mom.
1: This is Flashback. I'm
0: suddenly sort of heartbroken. <laughs>
1: Oh, dear. Oh, well. Yeah, well what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, it's uh, uh, it's yeah. it's an interesting, uh, you know, the 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 backstory for this movie is kind of interesting because Clint had, we had talked about the Man with No Name trilogy, and that's, I mean, he had been a busy actor in Hollywood, um, just like Don Siegel had been a busy director in Hollywood, um, but Clint was always kind of a just a bit player in all the projects that he was in. He didn't do anything big until he went over to, to Europe and did the Man with No Name trilogy and that kind of made a name for him and so when he came back and got onto Rawhide and uh you know he finally was like the star of movies after that point and so he did Hang 'em High uh the western which came out actually the same year as this and and this so that was kind of uh, we're right at the beginning of his US um, um film run And it's kind of interesting to look at where he goes from here, but it is kind of a pain that, you know, he has to start with something like this, um, which is frustrating. But it actually started as a TV series idea, which I thought was interesting. And I think the idea that Herman Miller and Jack Laird, they were some screenwriters from Rawhide, they really were going for this country mouse, city mouse sort of vibe. It was this this lonely deputy sheriff, uh, Sheriff Walt Coogan, who uh, went to New York City to work. And it, it had this vibe that I think may have been a better vibe. And then I know that Siegel and Eastwood, when they came on board, they had a bunch of different people writing it. And after like seven drafts, um, Eastwood said he just didn't like the direction it was going. He preferred that original concept. And so they brought him back and hired Dean Reisner on to work on it. And uh, and that's the script that we ended up getting here. He had worked with Don Siegel in the past. And um, I, I know that he had some issues with Eastwood, but uh, was able to kind of uh, work things out so that they could uh, find a script that would that people would be satisfied with. But even then, I still think... Finding a better way to do the country mouse city mouse story, I, I think they could have done so much better. I mean, we've talked about another great film that is so much better than this one that is very similar, and that's Clute. I think that's an, another example that is just shows what it should have been. Yeah, I, I absolutely
0: agree. And even still, this film you say was controversial for its portrayal of violence. Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, this this film doesn't strike me as a particularly crassly violent movie. What did I miss?
1: Yeah, and I was wondering about that because it, I I think what it is, it's just the way that anything violent happened. There didn't seem to be cause for it, like when when Eastwood um, uh, punches that guy out who's who's fondling the doctor, or I, I guess the big the fight in the bar and how you know people get laid out and they're just mm-hmm. kind of laying there and uh and bloodied up and stuff and and i i guess that's the sense that i'm getting is that's what they were uh thinking was too violent i mean it certainly certainly isn't targets but again well, i was
0: just gonna say that like, one had its i, I own recognize
1: life. you and i are deeply desensitized in in this area but targets uh, w- w- was legitimately but you have to remember this one is controversial Maybe because it had a big release. This is the one that got a big release and was pushed into theaters. Targets, they were so scared about releasing it that it hardly had a release. So it didn't have anything out there to be controversial because there wasn't any talk about it.
0: That's interesting. That's a great point. Yeah. Before we move on uh, to some of the other folks in the crew, uh, we haven't talked much about Don Stroud as James
1: Ringerman. Um, he, He was, you know, he was a weirdo bad guy. He's a guy that seems like somebody who's on an LSD trip. <laughs> I guess that's what they were going for. This is what, what did they say? He's, he's experiencing a uh, residual LSD after effects or something like that. Yes. And that's yeah. why he's bad. This was like the perfect era for making films like this for mass audiences to say, this is what LSD does. Don't use yep. it. Turns you into a criminal. And then you run around, you know, horrifying people for weeks.
0: Well, and you know, it gives us an opportunity to see a, a ridiculous stereotype of uh, of an asylum that you know ends up being closer to a dormitory <laughs> than, than. I mean, it's just it was like a circus, and I felt like, what are we, you know, was was this where the movie was supposed to be funny? One of the things you said last week, as we wrapped up, was that you know this was billed as an action comedy. Uh, I I didn't get a lot of that comedy, but I thought if there was any, maybe it would be here.
1: Yeah, I was trying to figure that out too, because IMDb calls it a, an action crime comedy. So I was trying to I was struggling through that. Is it because of little moments like uh, him and the woman? Like you know, is it just fifty year old comedy that we're not getting anymore? Um, or were there some genuine funny moments? I don't know. I didn't feel like there was really anything genuinely funny. I felt like if there's anything that's funny it's dated now and not that funny
0: as the bad guy. It was, it was good to see him. He's very strange. He's done a lot of stuff, 163 credits. Uh, and uh, this, this film was early in his,
1: in his run. Yeah. He's done tons of stuff. Uh, one of the most recent projects that he was in was Django Unchained. He was That's right. Bill Sharp in that. So yeah, he's an interesting one. The other person that I wanted to point out was, um, uh, Betty Field, who played his mother, um, she was an actress um, from the early days of uh, you know of film. Back in the thirty in late uh, late thirties, she started and and uh, you know she kept pretty busy all the way up into into the sixties. But this was her last film. She did a couple TV things after this and and uh, died in nineteen seventy three at the age of fifty seven. So,
0: what a way to go out! <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yay. Uh, I will say, I actually loved her character and the scene between her and Coogan when he comes over to her place. I I was like, this is energy. This yeah. is what the film needs. This was New York versus uh, the country mouse. And I really enjoyed everything going on in that moment.
0: You know, that is a terrific point. and I And I think it gets right to, as you say, that energy. Um, and it, it felt much more... Like a staged event, like a stage play, to me, where you actually, uh, you know, in terms of her performance, you actually get a sense of craft that I think is missing in, uh, you know, a, a lot of the movie. So I, I think you're absolutely right. I don't, <laughs> I don't mean to minimize that quite <laughs> so aggressively. She was, she was terrific. Yeah. Camera uh, with uh, Bud Thackeray, uncredited Robert Surtees. Uh, We've, you know, we've already mentioned camera a little bit and uh, editing by Sam Waxman. Um, There's uh, again, it seems very straightforward uh, production until it's not
1: there. Yeah. I mean, we already talked about the craziness of the uh, of the party scene and how they decided to go all out there. But there were a few other moments here and there that were just strange to me. The way that they were kind of cut in. Right after Coogan arrives in New York City, uh, he gets off the Pan Am pl- uh, helicopter and goes out into a taxi. And you get this really strange, not quite bird's eye shot that it, it after he gets in the cab, it it's this shot looking at a playground of all places, and then it tilts up to the traffic and all the taxis. And I had to go back a couple times and freeze frame it, like what. Am I looking at, and why am I staring at this all of a sudden? It was a very strange thing, and I, I really wasn't sure what uh, Siegel was trying to say with that shot. Did you notice it? I did, and I didn't uh, go back and watch it again. But you're absolutely right; uh, it was
0: it's a bizarre little way to uh, to give us a sense of perspective of the city. You know, maybe that there is a sense that we're upside down like this is an upside down experience experience maybe we're wearing that on our sleeve the fish out of water experience like this the whole world is going to be upside down for our protagonist here
1: yeah maybe or maybe it's like you know this is the this is the crazy city but there are still children here too and trying to get a sense of you know this scope of what the city is i, I don't that's know that's never I a
0: great argument because the next shot we get is just nutso people in a police station look yeah. at who these crazy children
1: grow up to be uh, <laughs> right. the world is lost we have our souls are crushed <laughs> right exactly <laughs> uh but you know there were some interesting things i already talked about uh the scene that i liked with uh with betty but also just as far as editing in the in the bike chase, which largely I felt was pretty standard and uninteresting, except that you could see that it was actually Eastwood and um, Stroud riding the bikes. you know I, you know I, I liked that that we got that element. but there was this really interesting cut that I actually was excited by um, where we're chasing where the cameraman is behind the bike as it's as it's riding away from us and then we get it's like a match cut on the bike and we're now leading the bike and it's coming toward us and it was like this really interesting jump cut um that or a match cut that that kind of flipped from front to back um just suddenly in the middle of the bike chase It was like oh wow that was a really interesting thing to throw in there so that was something that i enjoyed quite a bit
0: there are <laughs> there is some fr- funny little cuts in that. And I agree with you. I think it was cool that it was clearly both these guys, in, in for the most part, riding these bikes. There, there are some really interesting scenes. First of all, I, I never got the feeling that Don Stroud had a problem riding a motorcycle. I had less confidence in Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Did you notice he was always, uh, just looked a little shaky <laughs> uh, as he was trying to get around corners and such. And then there's a, there's a cut where, they are taking the bikes upstairs, and Stroud gets to the top of the stairs. I'm pretty sure it was Stroud. It might have been Eastwood in this case. But he gets to the top of the stairs and loses his balance a little bit, and you see the bike careen the front suspension, like the front fork, into the brickwork of a, of a wall around this castle or in the Central Park or something. And it cuts immediately at that collision, and I can't help wondering what happened next. Where, where did the bike go after that? Because physics was at work here, and I think the magic of film prevents us from seeing physics when it could have been at
1: its best. It would have been so much better.
0: Lelo Schifrin uh, is, uh, did the music.
1: Yeah, you know, he's a composer that's done a lot of, uh, a lot of good stuff. I, I think the music here worked. Um, I would say that I enjoyed it. I don't think I loved it, but I felt at least it had some...
0: Some themes that worked. I I actually think very highly of Lalo Schifrin. I I deeply enjoy his later work. Uh, you know, we've we have been seeing a lot of him uh, lately. With uh, you know, hearing his work in uh, um, you know Mission Impossible, it's uh, uh, very cool to see his stuff continue to kind of play on uh, over the years. So. Um, and and this he,
1: is the same year he did Bullet, so yeah, busy right, busy right. year.
0: He's he's responsible for some amazing themes uh, yeah. that have been around for decades and decades, and and so uh, uh, very cool. And you know, in fact, he was behind the uh, the series composer for Planet of the Apes, so um,
1: yeah. kind of fun for the TV series. So anyhow, uh,
0: a lot of history with other shoe print.
1: So there we go. So we're getting close to wrapping it up. One last thing about Coogan's Bluff that I thought was fairly interesting, uh, unrelated to the film, but there is the curse of Coogan's Bluff, which was a baseball-related superstition that allegedly prevented the San Francisco Giants Major League Baseball franchise from winning the World Series um, when they moved from New York to San Francisco at the end of the 1957 Season. It was a curse that began when some upset Giants fans who were in New York uh, apparently placed a hex on the relocated uh, uh, team, and the curse finally ended when the Giants won the 2010 World Series. um, And since they had moved to San Francisco, so that's uh, apparently the end of Coogan's Bluff, or the end of the curse of Coogan's Bluff. But um, again. I don't think it necessarily relates to the film, but we'll never know because it's in that missing footage when she talks about Coogan's block. That bluff. three
0: minutes, right. You Look know. for the three minutes. Uh, it, it turns out this does have a spiritual sequel.
1: It really does, yeah. Uh, the TV series McLeod, which Dennis Weaver starred in, uh, was loosely adapted from this. Uh, interestingly, just like um, I think Don Siegel's previous film also uh, – turned into uh, a tv series i'm trying to remember what uh, it was called uh his tv series was madigan hmm. Yeah, madigan was the the movie and it was uh turned into a tv series as well so there you go interesting yeah. uh well andy how did it do in the box office? Siegel got busy making his film with a budget of 1.5 million, which is about 10.4 million in today's dollars. The movie was released October 2, 1968, opposite Night of the Living Dead, which we'll be talking about soon enough. Coogan's Bluff proved popular despite apparently the controversy about the violence, bringing in 3.1 million or 21.5 million in today's dollars to the studio giving it an adjusted profit per finished minute of about $120,000. This bode well for Siegel and Eastwood, who would continue their relationship in four more films over the next decade. Four better films. Actually, I've only seen three of them, but of
0: those, they're better.
1: They are all better. Okay,
0: good to know. Good to know. Important important safety tip. Uh, I think it's probably time, Andy, for us to rank it. Yeah, let's do it. Just head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see every film we've talked about on this very show. Uh, or you can just swipe over in your show notes, tap on the word flick chart, and that'll take you directly to this movie where you can add it to your catalog and see how it stands up in ours.
1: First up, we have Coogan's Bluff or the girl with the dragon tattoo, the new version. version.
0: Uh, that's going to be the dragon tattoo.
1: Yeah, dragon tattoo for me. Coogan's Bluff or Atlantic City, I will go with Atlantic City. Yeah, Atlantic City. Coogan's Bluff or Near Dark. I'll still take uh, near dark. Yeah, I would take near dark. Coogan's Bluff for 2010. 2010. Yeah. Give me dolphins <laughs> in the swimming pool. This, this is delightful. <laughs> Coogan's bluff or apt pupil. I'm going to go with apt pupil. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Coogan's bluff or under the cherry moon. I'm going to go with Coogan's Bluff. <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, oh, sorry. no, oh, <laughs> come on. Uh, well, we're going to the mat, of course. Of course
1: we are. All right, here we go. Mm-hmm. One,
0: two, two three. three, scissors, scissors,
1: scissors. Paper. paper, scissors. <laughs> <laughs> okay. oh, what are you going to do? All right. Coogan's Bluff for Children of the Corn. Children of the Corn for me. Children
0: of the Corn.
1: That was not a great movie, though. No, it wasn't. (laughs) We're in that section of not great movies on our chart. Coogan's Bluff, and and I guess we should clarify, Coogan's Bluff is not a great movie. (laughs) Right, right. Coogan's Bluff or Scoop. (laughs) Scoop. (laughs) I'm all in.
0: I am all in on Scoop. Yes.
1: Yes. Coogan's Bluff or Rush. I will take Rush. Andy, There's we, drama this... when you have to put a hot iron on your arm. <laughs> that was serious drama.
0: <laughs> I hate being put in this position uh, because Rush has a lot of weight behind it as being a very, very bad movie. I'm going pick... to. I will
1: absolutely put Rush on first. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I'm going to
0: pick Kugan's Bluff.
1: Oh, you're a terrible yeah, person. Here we go. All right. Here we go. One, One two, two,
0: three. three. Rock. Rock. rock rock scissors rock. <laughs> all right uh, as it should be oh no, that's redemptive so. uh, well
1: it's one spot higher than rush it's a 364 on our chart out of 370 oh so dear pretty close to the bottom yeah yeah it's a okay. tough one
0: has a tough one so what does this mean for your letterboxd uh, ranking how, how many stars are you going to give this give this over at uh letterboxd.com slash the next reel.
1: I was deliberating on this one because I really didn't like it. I I, I feel like there's some merit just in uh, just moments and you know Eastwood is easy to watch. It's not a hard film to watch. It's not painful or anything like that. It's just it's not very well told, unfortunately. So I'm I'm still giving it 1 star but no likes.
0: How do I and I I got ahead of myself. What does this mean for your personal ranking on Flickchart? I couldn't tell you. It's so far down there. There's aren't numbers. I no, uh, I just
1: I haven't ranked it. Oh
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Noted. All right. Good. Well, this ended up at 909 on my uh, list out of 1038 movies. And according to the algorithm, I should give this a half star, a glorious half star over on Letterboxd. I'm going to give it a one star too. Uh, But for the very same reasons, I thought uh, Eastwood ended up being cheekier than he had to. I liked him him in those other movies when he talked less. Uh, And I, I don't think this movie satisfyingly portrays the grit of of the late 60s, early 70s uh, in, in a way that, that says anything unique or special. And um, that's, you know, it's it's sad. But luckily we have two more to see if we can cleanse our palates. Where do we go from here?
1: Well, we are going to be uh, just going a hop, skip, and a jump over to Gordon Douglas's film The Detective with Frank Sinatra, based on Roderick Thorpe's novel. This is kind of the... Uh, I, I don't think it's in any way related to the Die Hard story, but it's the it's the same character, right? Yeah, in the novels. That's, that's
0: right. That's my uh, understanding. So um, uh, that'll be that'll be great. That'll be interesting.
1: I'm looking forward to this one. I think it will be an interesting uh, addition to this series. So we'll chat about it next week. And if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on Patreon.com/slash The Next reel. And get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. We talk about movie news and new trailers. Plus, we go head-to-head in our weekly challenge in which we put
0: together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week on this show.
1: There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels. Just head on over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. You can learn more about us and check out the detailed show notes at thenextreel.com. You can subscribe for free in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at thenextreel.com. Next reel.
0: And if you want to get into the conversation yourself, join our Discord channel for a whole lot of movie chat with movie lovers from around the world. You can find the link to
1: join in the show notes or over on the website. The next reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Steven Smart running Instagram, Ben Lott running all things Twitter, and of course, thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
0: Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon
1: always doeth.
0: Now, Amazon did not giveth in a way that satisfies me uh, based on how we felt about this movie. There are only two one-star reviews on Amazon.com of this movie. It's, it's stunning. It sad.
1: It's stunning. A lot of people really like this one, Pete. I'm looking at the five stars right now. There are a lot of them.
0: There are a lot of them. Why are there so many five-star reviews of this movie? I don't, I don't understand it. We are, uh, in in spite of what they actually say, we are going to do, I think, both of these one-star reviews. I think we, we should. Have, we've yeah. scraped the bottom of the barrel.
1: We have- I feel like we should do the five stars uh, because we both rated it so low, but I think, you know, let's just do the one-stars. Let's just <laughs> stick with it. Cause- <laughs>
0: All right. Well, I'll go ahead and start uh, with uh, David E. Carlson, who says, one star. And he writes, lousy movie. Which I am actually taking a moment to mark uh, as helpful on Amazon.com
1: right now. I've marked that as helpful. You? Well, I've got J. Michael, who uh, watched this on VHS back in 2006. And he says, yawn. Clint Eastwood is always fun to watch and always has some great lines, but this was just a weak and pathetic movie.
0: Well, uh, Shala Art writes uh, as in response to that, boo, just kidding, this is my favorite. I also love him as Dirty Harry. Coogan is no Dirty Harry, Shala Art, no, no Dirty Harry. I am marking this review as helpful also. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon.